0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I don't know about you, but even though there's unlimited information available online, I tend to learn best by doing things and actually getting my hands dirty. If you're interested in making the leap from screens to the land, then I've got some exciting learning events for you. I'm going to be teaching two of my favorite subjects this upcoming autumn at the Green Rebel Farm in beautiful Miravet, Spain. The first course is a weekend intensive on regenerative agroforestry designed for people who want to try their hands at a range of different tree planting and orchard maintenance skills. We'll cover the whole range from reading a landscape and propagating plants, to planning a planting project, getting trees in the ground, maintaining a growing system, and even pruning a grown forest. The best part is that all of these are based on activities to advance a real farm. The second event is a 5-day deep dive into the regenerative design process, again with a focus on agroforestry. This course is designed for people who are either considering buying land, or who are at the early stages of developing a site and want to ensure that they get off on a profitable, regenerative trajectory. We'll work through the scale of permanence learning to gather essential information about the landscape, vegetation, and soil. From there, we'll work through hydrological capture and restoration, planning for productive planting and reforestation, business considerations, soil health regeneration, and much more. All of this too will be taught through hands-on activities, so you leave not only knowing how to develop an effective and profitable design, but also with experience with the work and skills required to get things done. This weekend agroforestry intensive will be from Friday the 16th through Sunday the 18th of September. And the design workshop goes from Tuesday the 11th to Sunday the 16th of October. So don't start your project with digital learning alone. Come and get your hands dirty with inspiring, like-minded people and level up your skills this autumn. You can learn more by clicking at the link at regenerativeskills.com or on the link tree in the bio on our Instagram. Early bird discounts are now open, so don't hesitate. And I'll see you in the orchard soon. Hey everybody and welcome back to this ongoing series on tree planting and agroforestry. As I've been researching this topic for years, I've begun to see a spectrum of tree planting concepts that look like a gradient based on the diversity in the system. On one extreme you have monoculture orchards and timber plantations, which are really just a single species on very large tracts of land. And on the other extreme you have syntropic agroforestry for productive systems, and then what are known as Miyawaki forests for native restoration initiatives. And in both cases, these are very densely planted areas of tens or even hundreds of different species. In both cases, the idea is to accelerate the succession and maturation of the system by leveraging the diversity of plant communities to mimic natural forests to promote growth and resilience in the whole plantation. In today's episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the world of Miyawaki forests with Hannah Lewis, the author of the new book, Mini Forest Revolution. Hannah Lewis is a writer focusing on people, nature, and conservation, she edits the Compendium of Scientific and Practical Finding Supporting Restoration to Address Global Warming, published by Biodiversity for a Livable Climate, an environmental nonprofit based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Nahana was born and raised in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and she discovered the Milwaukee Method and wrote Mini Forest Revolution while living with her partner and two children in France. In this episode, we're going to get into the history of Akira Miyawaki, the visionary scientist and ecologist behind the tree planting method named after him. We'll also break down the details of what makes this way of planting native forests so effective and revolutionary, from the deep research required to creating a planting list, how to prepare the ground to ensure that the trees get off to a healthy start, how to maintain the planted area as it gets established, and a whole lot more. We're also gonna explore the powerful community building potential of getting people together to replant degraded areas. So make sure to listen all the way to the end where Hannah gives her advice on how to start a Miyawaki forest for yourself. And so now I'll hand things over to Hannah Lewis. Well, Hannah, look, I'm really excited about this book because I have been interested in tiny forests, Miyawaki forest for a while, especially once I first had that interview with Shubendu Sharma uh, a couple of seasons ago. And I'm wondering how you first came to interact with and learn about Milwaukee Forest.
1: Yeah, I was living in France um, and uh, I I was working remotely for a Boston-based organization called Biodiversity for a Livable Climate. And so reading and writing a lot about the importance of ecosystems for regulating water cycles, carbon cycles, nutrient cycles, and cooling cooling the land Um, and so thinking a lot about these topics um, and kind of itching to get out there and do something that actually made a difference on the land. Uh, And so I was really primed for the Milwaukee method when I an article came across my screen about a project um, in Nantes, which is which is not too far from where I was living uh, in France where a couple had um, planted a small two hundred square foot square meter native, dense native forest um, uh, next to a road that was about to be expanded, and um, and it just struck me right away because I thought, "Wow, that's cool that they're actually planting a native forest. I mean, I hadn't heard about people doing that, and then they're doing it on a small scale, which means that they, us, you know, one couple working with a, a team of volunteers can do something like that. That's really meaningful. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so that's, that's how I came across it. And uh, I never looked back.
0: <laughs> so since that first planting event, you have researched many different configurations and the origins of how this method was first developed. Can you talk about who Akira Mirawaki was and how he came to develop his method of forestry
1: yeah well he uh, he it, he was um, born in i think nineteen twenty eight in japan um, he became he was he was the son of a farming family and he um, uh, he got into studying biology and plant biology. um, And so uh, eventually finished uh, a doctorate in um, weed. He studied weed ecology and um, weed morphology. Uh, And so he was pretty interested in weeds, but not the general society is not terribly interested in weeds. Um, But he had been noticed in Germany by, by uh, Reinhold Tuxen, who uh, was studying potential natural vegetation. And um, Tuxen invited him to come study with him. So basically uh, that launched Milwaukee on a, um, a kind of a lifelong journey to, to do vegetation mapping and to find out what plants are growing together and, and, um, and you know, how, how that relates to the climate and to the soil and the topography. And uh, so he came back to Japan and he started doing vegetation mapping there and thinking about, well, what is the potential natural vegetation? In other words, what, what plant community would be growing in any one site um, if humans, if we hadn't um, cut forests or cut down the vegetation for, um, yeah, for development, for cities, for agriculture? Um, and that's kind of tricky to figure out because the land is so transformed in Japan and Europe and the U.S. and many parts of the world that um, knowing what, what vegetation would be growing there is, is tricky. So he set, up, set about to figure that out and discovered that the sacred forests, um, there were sacred forests associated with Shinto shrines, um, and they had a very distinct vegetation, very, very old oak trees and, um, and laurel trees. And, uh, and it was different than the vegetation he, he saw around him in, in sort of urban areas uh, and discovered that that was the original vegetation and the, and the other vegetation was secondary or planted vegetation. Once, once he knew that, he thought this, this vegetation is durable, its ecological function, um, how how can we reestablish this vegetation and this is so important because we humans depend on healthy ecosystems for air for clean water for even for a milder climate we, we depend on healthy ecosystems so that launched him on his on his journey which which he continued until his until he the the last moments that he possibly could I I have um I have one quote I would like to read from him yeah, that I please think do. describes his, his vision and his engagement in the world, which, um, uh, so he says, let us go out and create real forests based on potential natural vegetation, not waiting for tomorrow, but starting now from where we are standing and spreading outward to the whole world. I myself am resolved to continue to plant trees based on potential natural vegetation together with you all, starting from where I stand and spreading out to the whole world so long as I have life left in my body. And he was really true to that, to that kind of vision and statement.
0: Wow, that is a really powerful drive for a person's life. Mm -hmm. Now, can you help to explain what the Miyawaki method is? That lineage and that understanding that he built up has come into a process that helps to grow forests at an accelerated rate and at just about any size scale. Can you break down those steps for me?
1: Sure. Yeah, so, so his goal, as I mentioned before, was to recreate the potential natural vegetation. And so to do that, um, he, he took a look at the process of ecological succession, whereby you have, um, when you start with bare ground, degraded land, which which we see all around us. Um, The first plants to colonize that land are small, annual, uh, short-lived plants that um, grow quickly and then die. But as they're growing, they're improving the soil a teeny tiny bit, adding organic material, cooling it down a tiny bit, decompacting it. And then um, they're succeeded by slightly larger vegetation, slightly longer-lived um, and this process continues through successive waves of vegetation where the where it's increasingly longer lived and, um, and larger until finally uh, you have a, um, a community a climax community um, of um, and in, in the case where you' where you' where the potential natru- natural vegetation is forest, the climax community is a, is a forest um, of trees that are shade tolerant so um they they can they can grow up in an understory and then replace the older trees that are died but that have died um but all the all the vegetation leading up to that point do need sun um and so they they cannot then enter that forest community because they can't germinate and grow up in the shade so you have that's that's in that sense you've created a, a, a community that's that's going to perpetuate itself through time and be stable. Um, and so what he did was he um, looked at what what those species are in that climax community let's plant them directly but. Since we're starting with degraded soil, we need to do the work that all of those earlier successional species have done to improve the soil. We need to loosen it, decompact it, add uh, organic material, topsoil. Um, and so let's, let's us do that ourselves. So the first step is improving, decompacting the soil, adding organic material. Up he suggested 20 to 30 centimeters of topsoil should be reestablished. Um, and then, and then, plant a mixture of what would be growing in that climax communities, the the climax community, the the canopy trees, the mid-sized trees, and the shrubs. So you have a multi-layer uh, natural forest. Um, and then they're they're basically primed to do well because you've created the ideal conditions. You've improved the soil to um, and you've planted the the mix of species that you know grows well in that environment Um, and so they grow so you you plant them and then you mulch it you mulch the ground to protect the soil while the plants are still really young and and eventually after three years they've created enough shade to uh, protect the soil create a a microclimate uh, inside inside that little forest um, that shades out any other in the weed species and um yeah and protects the soil and then it's self-sufficient after after three years so no maintenance is ever needed after that point if you've actually created a self-sustaining ecosystem
0: yeah that's that's phenomenal that's really innovative especially for the time and i've learned quite a bit about the succession of forests can you talk about the different strata and the levels that are needing to be considered when you're selecting your plants
1: yeah, well, it's it's um, mainly the the most important part is the canopy trees, um, and he he talks about the main forest species. So in the forests of, of Japan, where he was he was working in in southern Japan, mainly um, it was uh, oaks, evergreen oaks, and laurel species, and um, those were he called them the forest leaders because they of created the structure of the forest and they were they were yeah they were sort of the foundational species um and then but then they then you're also planting shrubs and mid-sized species that would naturally grow in that community um and then you're planting them densely so that you're encouraging interaction among all the all the species and so you know the the density is 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 like sort of typically three plants per square meter, which is really, really dense compared to other plantings. Um, but the cool thing is that you're using the vertical space too. So you're not only planting trees, which, which would be pretty crowded, but you're you're filling, filling the space in uh, just below the canopy level and then just below that in the shrub level. Um, and then there's other species, there's like herbaceous, species that belong in the forest too, um, you don't necessarily need to plant those um, if there's enough seed stock around in the, in the city where you're planting, because those can be brought in by the wind or by animals, um, so you're, you just want to cover the main ones that wouldn't necessarily establish there if you didn't do it.
0: Sure, and when it comes to amending the soil in order to get it ready for planting this diversity of species. Does it matter a whole lot what the subsoil or the soil profile is when you get started? Or is it just a matter of decompaction and putting on enough organic matter that it mimics what mm-hmm. a, a forest would do?
1: Um, you definitely have to see what, see what the subsoil is and, and part, of, uh, part of that um, helps you figure out what the potential natural vegetation would be, because that depends on the the soil type and the um, and the topography and the climate. Um, but for instance, uh, in some cases, um, these forests were planted on reclaimed land from the sea, and so that's really kind of wet. And um, and so what. What Milwaukee did to deal with that was to make really giant mounds, and so then it really was creating the conditions to yourself, um, and just making sure that there's good drainage, and that there's enough organic material, uh, and that the climate is right. Um, so you you can compensate for different soils like that, but. Um, um, But the soils, again, I mean, it's important to do an analysis of the soils at the beginning to to help you figure out what the the proper species mix would be.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And adapting it to whatever other conditions that you're in. But that kind of comes along with the initial selection of the tree species to begin with. And you mentioned how Milwaukee came up with a challenge of trying to figure out what the configuration of a native forest in an urban area might be. How do you go about doing that sort of investigation if you don't have a broad knowledge of plants to begin with, or perhaps need to go into the history to be able to find accurate information for your area?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a research project. It's really, it, it really is. And um, in, in the part of France where I was living, that has been agriculture. Um, historical records show that it was forest. Uh, several thousand years ago, but it has been agriculture for centuries um, and so there was one forest in the area, but it was a planted forest um, and so there were trees from California and all over that were planted in there um, and so it was kind of complicated to figure out what what would be the um, the the native forest community to plant um, so the thing the thing that's important i think um for me i i'm not a forest ecologist i have a background in environmental studies and sustainable agriculture but this was a new a new uh, exploration that, um, for me and as it was for a lot of the people who have who have adopted the Milwaukee method there's uh you interviewed shubendu sharmo he was a engineer um other people have been um you know come from business administration or it or you know so and so the process uh and miyawaki says you don't need to be a botanist to lead a project like this you just need to be really dedicated to doing it right and doing it well and not cutting corners and so um so so what 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 I did in that situation was um, I reached out to the um, the local forest department person to to ask. I, I came up with a list based on um, based on the the botanical concert National Botanical Conservatory had made a list of native species of that area. So I I took that list and I pulled out all the all the native woody like forest species I I put them all down and then I shared it with the local forest uh forest ranger uh he said "Mm, don't don't plant that one that's not going to grow really close to the coast or don't plant this one we've only found it really in the southern part of this area so he he helped me hone it down then I moved to um the back to the botanical conservatory and um And she actually helped me look at exactly at the site where I was planting and there had been a study uh, of forest growing into in in sites like that on the coast and she said so this study would your your site would match this kind of forest community described in the study and so you can find all the species listed here so then I was able to trim down my original list even more based on, based on that study. So it's, it's basically finding, finding the right people to advise you. And that's key, that's really, really important. Um, and, and then digging in every direction to figure out, uh, yeah, whether it's scientific material or historical material that talks about the vegetation um, so it's, it's a research project, and, and it definitely requires dedication and persistence.
0: Yeah, but the good news is that it's pretty fun. I've been doing this yeah. myself for where I am. I've been able to connect with forestry technicians from the local national parks and people who run also uh, big forestry nurseries for ideas and examples of what could work. Uh, and it's really expanded my own plant knowledge and understanding of the local ecology in the process which has tons of extra benefits as well. Yeah. Now we're talking about how the soil conditions might be a lot different if you live in an urban area or if you know the native forests have been taken away from agriculture or for uh, timber plantings or whatnot, but there's also the question of are we even in the same climactic conditions Mm. as to what the configuration of the forest that we're trying to plant would be able to support. I know in a lot of places, uh, not only have temperatures been rising, but rainfall patterns have changed a lot. Is it really a resilient solution to plant the native species when perhaps the conditions are not going to be conducive for them to thrive in 10, 15, 20 years?
1: Mm. Well, um, and Milwaukee definitely clearly said you sh- the potential natural vegetation is what would be growing in the current climate, in the current conditions. Um, and so, um, and so, what we want to do is create local resilience. We want to create an a, an ecosystem that's going to help mitigate, well, mitigate climate change in its own tiny little way. But um, also help us mitigate local conditions, um, right now, right, really quickly, you know, establish wildlife habitat right now. And so, so, um, so I think, and I think if you, you know, if you're looking a, a couple hundred years in the past for the, the species that we're growing then, um, that's still going to be a good template. Uh, the, the best, the best model that that we have for what would be what would be growing well now um, but but it's also important to take a look around exact you know at uh, in the area on the site to see what is growing well um, and i um just just yesterday i was talking to a forest ecologist from minnesota where i am now um, and he, he's observed that the counties in Northern Minnesota have warmed faster than any other counties in, in the whole United States. And it's, I think it's kind of consistent with the fact that the Arctic is warming faster than mid-latitudes. Um, so already those areas of Northern Minnesota have warmed two degrees, which is more than the global average. And what he's seen is that after a disturbance, um, the that's boreal that has been boreal. It's the edge of the boreal forest. And after after windstorms and fire, where trees have come down, that what is coming up now is actually maple, which is from the biome just below that bore that edge of the boreal forest. And so. In that kind of situation, if you were going to do a Milwaukee method there, I think that you would be considering those species that are growing well now, the maples, you would be thinking about a hardwood maple forest as opposed to a boreal just on that edge there where, where it started to shift. Um, but that's not the case in many places that we're planting. Um, and so I think the, the best, the best idea and, and what the what what I understand the Milwaukee method to say is that, uh, yeah, we need to grow according to current conditions and um, what's gonna do well right now, not anticipating how species will migrate in the future necessarily.
0: Sure, I suppose one of the advantages of this is that because the forest could establish so quickly, if you do have to adapt, you have a much shorter runway to getting new species established if that's what's called for in the future.
1: Yeah, I think it also may help them migrate in the future. If you have a good stock of the species that are growing at this particular latitude in this particular climate, if you can bring them there in large numbers, in healthy numbers, then as the climate starts to change, the seed stock is there. And so it'll make it easier for them to migrate north.
0: Sure, this will be interesting to see as people do this in more places around the world. So there are a lot of benefits to planting in this way. What are some of the main motivations that you've seen individuals and groups uh, come towards these types of tiny forest projects hoping to achieve?
1: Well, connecting city people with nature, uh, reestablishing that link. Because it's when when you live in a really urban area, it's easy to forget that actually we're part of a larger web of, of species upon which we depend. And so it gives, it gives people, um, an experience, like you were saying, it helps us learn the names of, of trees of different plants and, and it helps us learn what biome we're living in, you know, um, and, and so it gives us really a big, bigger picture of the, um, of the larger biological community that we're a part of, uh, so and and, um, and but I think also uh, you know the people people are really becoming very much aware of the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis and how they're intertwined and how um, the Milwaukee method addresses both of those crises at the same time with with really immediate results because um, because the the these little forests can establish themselves pretty quickly. So right away, you're creating habitat. And in the Netherlands, they planted um, a 200 square meter forest that within about five years, they counted 500 species um, of plants and insects and small mammals and birds in that area. So before it had been grass and, so they so they really you, you create you you create results immediately and also um, I think people are increasingly aware of the fact that trees help reduce the urban heat island effect they, they can cool um, create like really significant cooling effects in cities that are just getting hotter and hotter um, and so, if one tree can do have a cooling effect, imagine what uh, six, 600 trees and shrubs can do in, in a small area, especially given that they're probably healthier because of that, um, be, by virtue of growing in a community, a forest community.
0: Sure. Now, no method is without a few disadvantages and compared to other agroforestry plantings, what are some of the drawbacks to planting in a mirawaki configuration?
1: Um, well, there's a there's definitely a lot of upfront effort. Like you and I were talking about a bit ago, there's there's that uh, it's knowledge intensive. You you can't just kind of wing it. Um, and so um, so there's the learning curve. There's the um, there's the yeah the, the, eff- the effort it takes to figure out what's what's really going to work in terms of a a, a species list um, and um, and then the soil the soil prep is significant often you know we're just digging a hole in the ground and putting a tree in there but in this case we're using oftentimes using machines to to loosen up the soil and then. Um, Adding significant amounts of compost, so that's another additional effort, and then um, and then you're planting so densely, so you're actually with with the same number of trees, you're covering a much smaller area. Um, so you're not, yeah, it's it's hard to cover a large area with this method. Um, so I would say those those are the um, those are the key drawbacks, and and also just. You know, maybe the newness. Like, if you're a project leader and you're trying to uh, get people um, to to engage in this project, you know, it, it's it's new and people people may be skeptical. So there's there's that hurdle too. Is just kind of like experimenting with the method and saying, let's let's give it a try. And if it works, let's keep doing it. If it doesn't work, no harm done, really. Um, but
0: Sure. And have you found some ways to cut down on these initial costs and disadvantages? Are there some techniques that people have tried to, to make it a little easier or cheaper?
1: Um, well, so yeah, so I guess another challenge is finding native species, finding all the species on your list. And for us, when we did it in France, there was only one nursery in the whole region that was carrying uh, local local see local um tree species um, and so we we had to go three hours to get to get those and if he hadn't been there we wouldn't have been able to do the project um, and so in um in Cameroon um Limby Blessing Tata who was the project leader there she uh she found a local nursery um but they only had uh, a handful of local species that they were carrying. So they, their first few forests, they only planted, I don't know, 10 or so different species. Uh, and yet um, that that area has just thousands of local species that could be planted. Um, it's an incredibly rich area. So she, she decided with her organization to start their own nursery to say well it's expensive and we're also really limited in terms of species if we're relying on this local commercial nursery so let's uh let's within our organization start our own nursery and it'll it'll allow us to do projects um respond more quickly to requests because we have our own stock and uh we don't have to wait for a grant to go buy from a nursery so um yeah so i and actually Milwaukee, uh that was his preference to begin with he often in his projects he had people like groups of school kids go and collect acorns from a local forest plant them in their you know in their schools and grow grow the seed stock like that so it's a cool it's a really cool idea if you if you can organize that far in advance to to collect the seed to grow it because then you're that much more um knee deep in the whole process and engaged in the whole process and you're and you're cutting costs too
0: yeah it just makes so much sense and actually starting a tree nursery is one of the enterprises that i'm going to get started with once i move on to the new property as well partly because i mean fortunately there are areas and nurseries around here where you can get native tree material and uh, seedlings as well but there's a lot that you can learn from going through the process yourself. And there's a lot of money to be saved as well. If you start things from seed, plus there's just the the sheer joy of of seeing something transform from a small little grain all the way into a large mammoth life form. And this kind of brings it back to one of the most important elements, both in the book and in this technique is that there's a huge potential for building community out of events like this, Mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of the examples that you have in your book and some of the inspirations that you've seen from these community efforts that were centered around planting projects?
1: Um, I could talk about Miyawaki and maybe I'll just mention that his, uh, his planting efforts were always framed as planting festivals and they always involved hundreds or even thousands of people and lot, you know every generation involved so he set the standard he set the tone for what people would then um i think what made people kind of fall in love with the method to begin with was that community engagement that he always um he always uh prioritized and um and so i i well i really i think the example i mean there's lots of examples maybe i'll just start with the netherlands because um they their goal for their, their tiny forest program is specifically to connect kids to nature. And so when they, when they engage um, a city, so cities apply to be part of the program and then neighborhoods themselves have to propose a project. So if my city is, is going to be involved in a tiny forest program, I from my neighborhood can get my neighbors together and say, we want one in our park here. Um, and here's why, and here's how we're gonna you know, support it, et cetera. And so it's actually the neighborhoods coming forward to say, we wanna do this. And then, and then the organization, the tiny forest program comes back and says, okay, well, you also need to have a school participating. Um, so every single tiny forest is going to be adopted by a school, and it's gonna be the kids from that school who plant it. it's the kids from that school who are going to be the rangers, meaning that they're going to kind of monitor it, make sure that there's no litter around. Um, They're gonna be the ones giving tours to their parents and to other community members to show them what this forest is, what the species are. So a real adoption, I mean, they are the rangers, they're the caretakers of those forests and they're growing up with the the trees. The trees start smaller than them and are quickly taller than them, but they're growing up at the same time. Um, So, um so a and um and then i'll go back to cameroon again too where uh where um they they the first project they did um they engaged a a large number of volunteers and planted but they didn't do enough quite enough community outreach and so there was some damage because people didn't know what it was all about, and um, and so they had to replant. And so then they they for the next project they did they said, okay, this time we're going to do a lot of community engagement. And so the you know lots of people the um, the leader of the community uh, came, and everybody was involved in the planting day. And they really they really stressed you know what this is about. This is going to recharge the water table in this area so that we have we We can deal with our water crisis. um, this will help us with that. Um, but we need to take care of the little plants when they're at a young age, so make sure the kids are aware of that, et cetera and And that was key for making that that uh, that project um, go just a little bit smoother than the first one where they hadn't done as much community engagement. so um, anyway, that's those are a couple examples, but um, Well, maybe I'll just add one more where in Beirut, when they planted, um, they had about a hundred people, uh, involved in their first forest planting on the river, the Beirut river, they had to, they had to get off trash. They had to, um, there was a lot of steps to do that people, that volunteers could be engaged in, but when they were planting, people just walking by came in and said, Hey, can I plant one? That's, that looks really cool. And, And it was like, it it was, it was cool to see people just kind of, I guess, come alive just by the fact of touching a tree, you know, holding a plant, putting it in the ground, knowing that they had made that contribution. So it's pretty, I think it's pretty appealing to people.
0: Oh, I could definitely see that. It's been (laughs) my experience. I've been involved with quite a few planting events and projects at this point, and you're absolutely right. Uh, There's something inherent in people that just wants to be involved with uh, touching the ground, regreening an area, being involved with the process of life and projects that have a trajectory for for a better future and a healthier area. And especially, like you said too, with kids, I've I've seen that in a big way because they're mm-hmm. often not given license to go out and dig and and yeah, be, be involved alongside with adults, but they they can be just as effective. They learn really quickly. And with the example you gave in the Netherlands of growing up with the forest and having ownership of it as well, I can only imagine what that does for, yeah, their, their understanding of their capacity to participate and actually have a beneficial relationship with their own environment, rather than this more common narrative of the best that we can do is try and reduce our impact and consume less. And so uh, we need to go back to one part about these systems that is really important to understand. And I think it's often not talked about enough, especially in planting projects, and that's the maintenance that is required to make sure that they succeed. And even though these forest configurations are mostly self-sustaining, The first three years is pretty crucial for them to get established and to become strong enough that they no longer really need much intervention. Can you give me an idea of what a maintenance plan looks like for one of these projects and what you should consider as far as perhaps budget or equipment or hours required to to get it going?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it depends a bit on the climate, if it's a drier place, like Southern California, you may need to do more watering at first. Uh, um, But the the ones that I'm particularly familiar with were the ones in Europe where um, the the maintenance was actually fairly limited. So um, in Paris, the city came by and watered, um, watered the forest in its first few years just twice just like once or twice in July, August, when things were getting really hot and dry, but that's all um, it's, you know, it's, it wasn't like a regular weekly thing or something like that. Um, and then uh, and then it's weeding. So, you know, if you've got a team of volunteers that are excited about the project and you weed um, a couple times, you pull up the weeds and then you just lay them right down on top of the mulch so that they add to the mulch. Um, and you know you do that a few times during the summer or as needed. Uh, that's that's pretty much it. So it's it's actually, I think, at least in the European context, it's 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 pretty it's a pretty light hand that maintenance period. It's important, but it's um, but it's not super involved.
0: Sure, I would imagine the main things being access to water. Of course, is essential to keeping yeah. saplings alive. And then whatever competition they might have from weeds, grasses especially, can be a bit of a killer for saplings. And then I know, at least in my area, wildlife can be a bit of a challenge. And we have wild boar. I know in Minnesota, you've got deer pressure. Those things need to be considered as well, right?
1: Yeah. Um, So if you do have the potential for rabbits or deer or whatever, you can put a fence can put a fence around. Some sometimes people do that. Um, on the other hand, in an urban environment, or you know, or a fence around also to keep to keep uh, domestic pets out, or you know, just to demarcate it and let people know, don't go walking around in here yet. Uh, well, don't go walking around in here because we're trying to protect these. So just as kind of a signal. Uh, but then it can be removed. Uh, once the trees are pretty established, the fence can, and I think should be removed so that there is free flow of wildlife. Um, let me just go back to the maintenance also, uh, in terms of weeds and water, there's a, there's a really thick layer of mulch that gets put on the soil after you plant. And that really goes far in terms of limiting the maintenance because it's keeping the humidity in the soil and, uh, and, and also pressing the, you know, keeping the weeds down a little bit. So that's, sure. a, that's part of the reason that the, the maintenance um, is not super intensive often.
0: I would imagine, too, at least in hotter climates where there are more growing days, the canopy is going to close up pretty fast, given how densely mm-hmm. planted everything is. Yeah. And once yeah. that happens, you're going to minimize the weed pressure anyway.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: So perhaps it's more of an issue in colder climates that the weeds can get established even before some of the trees have put on leaves, even as they grow bigger.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: It's all a little bit context specific.
1: But even the smaller weeds, you don't need to worry about them too much, like the wildflower, like, you know, smaller, lighter wildflowers that aren't too aggressive. You can leave them. And in fact, in the Netherlands, um, part of the reason they had that intense 500 species biodiversity is because they let the wildflowers along the edge uh, just stay there, and it was only it was only the really aggressive things like in um, uh, in in I think in in France and elsewhere in Europe the Robinia is um, pretty aggressive um, and it's woody, so it can grow fast and big, but mainly you don't want to suffocate the plants, so you don't want the weeds to shade out the the young saplings. So if they're not doing that, you don't necessarily need to take them out. And in fact, if you leave them in, it'll create more pollinator opportunities.
0: Sure. Sure. And there's a lot to be said for companion planting down at the ground level too. The forms yeah. at that level can be really beneficial to the growth of plants and help them in a myriad of ways from mining nutrients to fixing nitrogen to attracting pollinators, maybe even keeping pests away certain types of yeah. flowers. All of these consortiums can figure out where they fit in the niche within the ecosystem and, and yeah. make themselves comfortable and make friends with their neighbors, I suppose.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and make <laughs> friends with the uh, microorganisms in the soil.
0: Sure, yeah, it yeah. makes me think about the potential of putting in mycorrhizal inoculants as well, especially in places where the soil is quite poor. And depending on the quality of the compost that you get, which when you get into higher quantities might be really expensive, Mm -hmm. um, that could be a way to extend the reach of the tree's root systems before they get established on their own while creating those beneficial connections below the soil surface. Could be worth doing some experiments on. I think that's something I'm gonna try here. Because in my context, the soil is extremely sandy and lacking in biological material down at the lower parts in the basin by the river and i've been speaking with some soil scientists who have suggested that different types of mycorrhizal inoculants might be the key to making that work
1: yeah i i know that they're um like in beirut uh making compost tea is a big part of the process sure Um, oh yeah yeah
0: there's so many different ways to inoculate soil at this point with microbes, with fungi, with uh, nematodes, all sorts of beneficial mm-hmm. creatures that help to fortify the soil food web, that I think it's just going to be a matter of context and probably budget too, mm-hmm. <laughs> unless you have yeah. a lot of time to kind of overcome the costs of bringing these types of things in by making them yourself. It can get expensive kind of quick. Yeah. But yeah, this is really interesting. And so this can work pretty much anywhere in the world, right? It's just a matter of adapting it to your climate and your soil conditions for the most part?
1: Um, it can work anywhere where climates or where forests uh, forest would, would normally grow, where the climate is suitable for forest. So if you have like in the Great Plains in the US, you have, um, well, at one point we had an incredibly biodiverse Highly functional prairie, um, and um, and that was perfectly adapted to the climate there. And much of it has been replaced by agriculture. But um, but if you were going to restore that area, um, you know, restoring the the grasslands would would be the best idea. Except perhaps along rivers. Um, rivers rivers and streams tend to have a a woody a woody area on the side. So. Um, the Milwaukee method would would apply there, but um, yeah, but much of the world does have a have a climate suitable to forests, so in every 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 place where there is, then a, a miyawaki method would work.
0: It really makes me think about how many different configurations could be trialed here, because you know I know that Milwaukee didn't really advocate for doing these types of plantings for any sort of production not for fruit harvest or perhaps timber or anything. This is much more for rewilding. But there seems to be a spectrum in the configurations and the planning that can be done for an agroforestry planting all the way up to these rewilding, very, very highly diverse and dense plantings. And then you take a step back and you can go into perhaps centropic agroforestry, which I've also Mm -hmm. worked with going into less diversity all the way back to monocultures, which we're definitely moving away from, but that there's a a medium ground depending on the n- needs of the project or the outcome of a business endeavor that you may need from this, that can integrate diversity and natural species while also having room for production species and you know, maybe even timber and, and fruit or berries or whatever it might be that you're trying to get a yield out of that would otherwise then justify the diversity that would be difficult to integrate into say a a monoculture or a place where you're only trying to make money out of. I think Mm -hmm. uh, there's an opportunity to explore a lot of this. And yeah, this is one of these wonderful pieces of the puzzle that thank goodness, someone has done all of the research to advance and to trial in many different places. And it fits beautifully with so many of the configurations that can motivate people to reforest in their area.
1: Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. So it's sort of the idea of a multifunctional ecosystem where it's you know where it's it it's works for wildlife and it works for people too, even in an economic sense. And and I would say um, on the Yakima Nation and um, and in Cameroon. Both, both of the the people the people I interviewed in both places were talking about um, a relationship that people have with forest species, and so um, and so in in Cameroon, people know this. They they know the, the native species. They're really um, knowledgeable about what what local species are and what medicinal properties or fruits they have, and so. Um, once you have these these forests established, um, and that was part of Limby's goal, was it what it, it was the ecological and social value of forests because mm. women especially have been harvesting forest products in a sustainable way for a long time and have that have that knowledge. And so it's, you know, the forests are not only to recharge the water water table and restore the land, but but also to eventually once they're established to be able to harvest um, medicinal uh, botanical products and things like that um, in a sustainable way. And, and then in the Yakima Nation, um, they have a tradition of, of harvesting a root crop in the mountains, in the forested mountains. And so they planted some of those, some of the things that they have always used um, that are forest products. They, they planted them with their with the, forest, the Milwaukee forest they planted there. So um, so that's already an idea of the ways in which um, wildlife and people can share a space uh, in a balanced way.
0: Absolutely. And just like you said, you know there are so many cultures around the world that adapted through their relationship with the forest and the native species within them that provided for, huge majorities of what they consumed in their lives, but also their crafts, their art, their, their buildings. And there are some fantastic resources to learn more about this, but they, they differ and are really beautifully unique in different areas of the world with their own histories and such. I, I grew up in Japan and I remember some of the forestry traditions from there. And then in my time in the, the Pacific Northwest and the native relationships with the cedar trees, around there and now here in the Mediterranean area and the long history of agroforestry from coppicing to care of olive trees down in the, the lower basins and how those integrated with other perennial crops like vines uh, grapes and such it's the more I travel the more I learn about the close relationship that humans and cultures have developed with the forest where where they grew and. Hopefully, this is an impetus for people to reestablish those relationships and learn more about the potential of the forestry configurations, even if they've been disconnected to them for some time.
1: Yeah, a lot of potential there.
0: Yeah. Well, so what advice would you give to someone who, after hearing this, is inspired to start a Milwaukee planting project? Where, where should they begin?
1: Uh, well, there's always this, <laughs> but. Um... I think the, the steps the steps are starting with um, getting a team together. You know, talk to people, talk to your friends, talk to people you think would be interested, reach out to a city council member who uh, is, has, a, has a real green perspective, um, you know, reach out to universities, but just start talking to people to figure out who is interested and who has Really um, important skills to bring to the table, and and who has land um, that 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 could be used for that. Um, so so yeah, I think. Um, and then there's there's lots of resources. Um, there's lots of resources in addition uh, online. A Forest um, has been creating. Um, open source materials for a long time. They have a, a YouTube series, uh, yeah, YouTube series um, going through all the steps. Um, and they also do, you know, they have training programs uh, as well. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to, um, to start learning about the method and, and then to get it going in your area, you have to start talking to.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm really glad you brought up the resources that A-Force put out because back when Shubenda was on the show the first time, they were just mm-hmm. launching their crowdfunding campaign oh, right. to get those started. Yeah. And now that they're yeah. there available, I'll be sure yeah. to link to those so that people can yeah. find them.
1: Good idea. Yeah. Well,
0: look, Hannah, thank you so much for taking the time. And before you go, can you tell listeners where they can find your book, The Mini Forest Revolution, and how they can get in touch with you to learn more?
1: Yeah. Um... Well, the book is published by Chelsea Green. So you can find it on the Chelsea Green website. Um, And then it's also available online, most places where you can buy books online. Um, And I have a website, hannahlewis.org. And so that's that's a good place to get in touch with me.
0: Fantastic. Well, this was a really fun conversation. I already have some plans of starting some of these Milwaukee Forest plantations. Uh, on my client's land and possibly even on my place when I finally get moved in there. So I will definitely reach out to you. And I know for sure when those are going forward, I'd love to get your opinion on them.
1: That's exciting to hear.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Let's keep in touch and have a great rest of your day.
1: Sounds good. Thank you.
0: Thanks once again to Hannah Lewis. I'll be posting all of the links that she mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come and join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Don't forget to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so that you never miss an episode as well. And that's our show for this week. As always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.